0: it's great to be here today. I'm Dennis and glad to be here. If you're in the auditorium, if you're out in the atrium, if you're joining us online, welcome to Crossroads. I have a friend who uh, sails boats and he says whenever he shows up at a regatta, a series of boat races, there are three kinds of boat racers. The first category is the purely recreational racer. They show up, they've got beer coolers strewn all over the deck, they got this big grill lashed to a mast and the crew, they think starboard is a craft beer. <laughs> and port is a wine. So they're, they're uh, really there to, for the party. Then there's the obsessively competitive crews. I mean, it is all business. It's win or nothing. In fact, they've taken, they take every shortcut possible. And they even sand down the hulls of their boats to make sure that they have no excessive weight. That's the obsessively competitive. And then there's the reasonably competitive. It's a race, yes, but they don't take shortcuts. They're serious but not obsessive. They want to win, but that's not what defines the success of their experience. So the gun goes off, and off they sail. They all start the race really well. But that's when it all changes. Because in boat racing, as in life, it's much easier to start well than it is to finish well. And the purely recreational in that race, those who are simply in it for the fun, they get a DNF, did not finish. And the obsessively competitive, the stripped down, sanded down, shortcut taking boats sooner or later a wave that is so stressful is gonna crash into their boat that it shatters that finely sanded hull. They also get a DNF, did not finish. But the competitive, those that are serious about it, but not obsessive to the point of taking shortcuts or extraordinary risks, those are the boats that finish. One of the labels, one of the reputations we never want to have for our lives our church our organizations is this dnf they did not finish and here's one of the great truths about life it's much easier to start something than it is to finish it right i mean you know this how many of you have an unfinished project of some kind in your life and i'm not talking about the ones that are on schedule all right that's normal You have unfinished projects like, let's say, that summer landscaping project. You still have piles of mulch, rock, or landscaping timbers stacked in your yard somewhere. Or maybe it was that clean out the garage project, you know what I'm talking about? You've got about $500 worth of stuff sitting on the floor of your garage while your $20,000 car sits in the driveway in the hail and sun. Or maybe it's your email inbox. all those little flags you know what i'm talking about it says i need to respond i need to do something about this it's screaming finish me and we just scroll the flags below our visual site because we don't want to see them or something a little bigger you started a financial plan you know it's going to make the difference between financial chaos and financial health in your future but you've never finished it not the plan or we started a get healthy plan that diet That fitness center membership, that 12 step group, that support group, we haven't been for months. Or we started that get here spiritually healthy plan with great intentions, but we've faded. Our energy has faded. We've lost focus. Our Bible's gathering dust. That next step class series that we started three years ago, we still haven't finished. Our passion and energy for God has waned, and we have a lot of good intentions strewn around the garage floor of our hearts. Show of hands, how many you have at least one unfinished project, something in your life? Yeah, well, you're in good company. Today, we're going to finish our summer road trip series through the Book of Acts. I'm going to talk about how do we finish well. And we haven't spent a lot of time in the second half of the book, so let me recap it quickly. Paul and the other Christian leaders, empowered and envisioned by the Holy Spirit, travel from town to town, country to country, planting, starting Christian communities, churches, teaching and explaining to people that Jesus, who was just on the planet, the resurrected Messiah, has arrived. And God's new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a reality, can become a reality for every human being and together in churches, in communities all over the world. And over a 15 year period of time, in the second half of the book of Acts, Paul starts about 20 of these Christian communities, churches that we know of. And we don't know how many others were started by other Christian leaders all over the Roman Empire and beyond. And the final chapters of the book of Acts are all about the challenges that Paul faces, and everything goes wrong. He's falsely accused. He's almost assassinated. He's in prison. He appeals to Rome so he can get a fair trial. And on the way to Rome, he's shipwrecked. Everything goes wrong. And here's how the book ends. Paul is in Rome under house arrest. Acts 28, 30 to 31. It's printed in your program notes. If you want to pull them out, it's on the screens. I'm going to read it for us. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, just leaves us hanging when it comes to the life of Paul. We don't know what happened. And this is what many Bible scholars believe happened to Paul. And the two years is a clue. You see, there was a two-year statutory period once you got to Rome where your case had to be presented to the Roman government or it was dismissed. And so church history tells us this. We don't know this from the Bible. But either one of two things happened. One, the prosecution against Paul never shows up. They did not really have a case. Or the other option is Paul's, the seriousness of Paul's case was so low priority, according to the Romans, that they, they, their caseload was so busy. It just never came up. And so church historians tell us that after this two-year period, Paul was released. And there was a period of time, and then later, Paul was rearrested tried, and then executed. And right before his execution, from one of the most wretched dungeons in Rome, Paul sits down, white-haired, bent over, old Paul, and writes the last letter that we know he wrote. It's 2 Timothy. And I want to read excerpts from that, where he writes to a young colleague and friend. And Paul writes, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. At At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How does Paul finish? I mean, he finishes strong. He finishes well. He finishes with this sense of deep peace. How did he do it? How does he do it? Well, he keeps these. I'm going to talk about five perspectives that Paul kept in the front of his mind no matter what he faced, no matter how difficult life got. Whenever he wanted to finish something that enabled him to face enormous opposition, enormous suffering, enormous injustice, and was able to say at the end, I finished well. So here's the first one. You can write it down Life is a struggle. In verse 7 of that Timothy section, Paul says that he's fought the good fight, finished the race. The word fight in Greek is the word for wrestling match. It's the Greek word agon. We get the word agony from it. In other words, a fight, a race, life, the struggle, there's a certain agony to it. We're going to finish well. It's always going to involve a struggle. In the northeastern northwestern part of Britain there's a beautiful lake called Lake Windermere but to get there you have to go over Kirkstone Pass and right at the beginning of the road that goes up the pass there's this sign the road is called the struggle it's because they're just warning you hey you, you want to go to that lake that beautiful lake it's going to involve a struggle there's a winding twisting steep road 20% great that's steep no trucker would take this road ever because of the steepness and, and what Paul is saying in this section is, is that life is a struggle and we all know this and a lot of the struggle of our lives has to do with our external circumstances the problems that we face but there's another struggle that Paul talks about in the New Testament which I want to talk about right now and it's that struggle that happens inside you and me that struggle that internal struggle And Paul talks about, he uses the word, the flesh. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the athletic metaphor again to describe this internal struggle. He says, it's like this. We go to dinner and it's dessert. And they bring out the dessert. Death by chocolate is the name of the dessert. And we all say, what? I'll take the biggest piece. But the athlete says, no, no dessert for me. I want it. But it's not good for me. And so later in the evening we say, let's go out. Let's go out. It's going to be late, but let's go out. And the athlete says, sorry. Can't go with you as much as I want to. I need to get my rest. That's the internal struggle. And Paul says that athletes exercise. We, it's translated self-control. But the Greek word is ego, kratia, Ego, control. Martin Luther had some very difficult things to say about the ego. He wrote, due to our original sin, our ego, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize, what it fails to realize is this twisted and crooked way it seeks all things, including God for itself. The ego is ravenous. That part of me, I wanna use things for me. I wanna grab things for my good. I wanna make sure that I look good. And when no matter what situation we're in, where's going to be this internal struggle of this ego? We're going to go into a meeting where somebody has this presentation. And there's going to be a bit of an ego struggle because you think, well, I did a better presentation than that. My project is more priority than that. Why didn't I get... Pre-? There's this ego struggle that goes on. And Paul says it just goes on and on. And we have one of two postures when it comes to our ego. Posture number one, your life, your resources to serve me. The other, my life, my resources given to serve you. And every time we give in to this selfish ego, our souls and our lives, as Martin Luther says, curves in on itself, what he's saying is our souls shrivel and shrink a little bit. They get smaller. Richard Rohr writes, if we try to change our ego with the help of our ego... We only have a better disguised ego. No problem can be solved by the same consciousness that caused the problem in the first place. He continues to write, Self-made people and all heroic spiritualities will try to manufacture an even stronger self by willpower and determination. This pushy response doesn't normally create loving people. The game is unsustainable unless you make others, even your whole family, pay the price for your need to control, your own aggression and self-assertion. Then he says, the imperial ego has to go. and And only powerlessness can do the job correctly. The solution is we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to say in this struggle, I can't fix me with me. I'm going to need some external help. And we need to face the reality every day that life is a struggle for the smallness or largeness of our souls. And that when we give in to self-centered ego, our souls shrink. But when we have the posture of my life for yours, and that comes from God alone, God empowers us to do this. And we actually love people. What happens to our souls? They expand, they grow. And that struggle is going on every day, all the time. And we need to finish well. We need to embrace the struggle and understand my life for yours. That's the choice in those moments. Here's perspective number two. Death is an adventure. Where do you hear that? Not much. Look at verse six. Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. And the word departure is, a way of talk, is Paul's way of talking about death. And it's often used in untying a ship from its mooring. And so, so it was especially used for that. And I want, you to see the, I want you to see the incredible balance that Paul has, that the Bible has with regard to death. Because when a boat is untied and it goes off, there's a certain sadness to that, Right? especially if you're the one standing at the dock or you're the one standing at the airport. It's really hard to see people go off on on their flight, on their voyage. And there's a certain sadness to that. But there's also, the other side of it is, there's a certain hope and expectation because they're off, they're going to someplace new. There's a new voyage. There's a new adventure out there. And this balance is all throughout the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking to a group of people who've lost people that they loved. They've died. And he says to them, grieve. Yes, grieve. Grieve deeply. He said, it's not just about keeping a stiff upper lip. No, grieve. Grieve deeply, he says. But don't you dare grieve without hope. Grief, yes. Hope, absolutely. Jesus had the same perspective. He walks up to the tomb of a dear friend who's died four days, four days before. His name is Lazarus. And Jesus, knowing full well that in a few minutes he's going to say, Lazarus, come up, and Lazarus is going to join them in their reality. He's going to, he's going to be resuscitated. But before Jesus says that, it says, Jesus wept, which is a very tepid translation of the word wept. Because what that word means is there was something in Jesus' heart and soul that says, Life should not be this way. Death is not normal. I grieve for my friend. And the word means he bellowed. He roared. He was mad at death. Jesus is not like the Lion King. When Simba asked him about death one day. Well, Simba, says the Lion King, it's bad that we die, but then we become fertilizer. The grass grows up out of the fertilizer, then the antelope's eat the grass, then we eat the antelope's. So we die, but we're all part of the circle of life. It's all very very natural. And according to the Lion King, death is no big deal. Just accept it. It's all natural flow of life. Just realize you're just fertilizer. you're not going to hear Jesus talk like that we'd have no part of that and you're not going to hear your own soul say that when you're sitting here and it's your loved one that we're doing the funeral for your soul isn't going to go well hey we're just all fertilizer anyway no there's going to be a part of your soul that's going it should not be like this we did a funeral here a week ago Thursday for a dear friend of Crossroads Al Mondragon. And uh, he was a greeter at the east door for years and years and years. Cowboy hat, tie, cowboy boots, look you in the eye, hello, brother, hello, sister. He didn't have to know you, he just called you that. Wonderful spirit, dialysis for a number of years. Finally, his body just gave out on him. And a week ago Thursday, we had a service here. And as a part of the service, there's always a slideshow that the family puts together. And it was a wonderful slideshow. And they even had recorded his voice, and so his voice was on the slideshow. And I'm sitting down here getting ready to give up, get up and do my message, and I'm just a mess. Oh, I loved Al. You loved Al. As I saw those slides on the screens up here, scrolling through, and I saw young Al, and vibrant Al, and strong Al, and I saw him with his family, with his five kids, with his Grandkids with his great-grandkids, and I saw that smile and sparkle in his eye, and I realized he's been ripped out of our lives. There's a part of my life that just goes, "No. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have to gather and talk about the end of a person's life. It shouldn't be that way. Part of my soul raged against the whole idea of death. And in my conversations, my last couple conversations with Al, before he died. Um, he would look at me and he'd say, pastor, he never called me Dennis, he always called me pastor. He said, I'm I'm sad to leave. He said, but, and then you get that sparkle and that smile and he said, but I'm not afraid to die. He said, I'm ready to meet my Lord and what my Lord has for me in the next life. There's both, isn't there? There's grief, sadness, yes, but there's also hope and a forward-looking sense for future. And why is there both? Well, because God didn't create a world with evil and suffering and death. It's filled with those things because we turned away from it. We thought we had a better plan. As a result, everything was broken. Then Jesus came, and he began to put things right again. Hungry people ate. Blind people saw. People who couldn't walk, could walk. And death, death took its best shot at Jesus and Jesus just walks out that all you got I have more I have resurrection life I have resurrection life And Jesus demonstrated and promised that resurrection life could be a part of our reality as well. And I know the idea of resurrection for us can be a very far off, hazy kind of religious idea, sort of pie in the sky by and by. We don't really have any idea of what it's gonna be like to be resurrected. And right now we have, human beings have five senses. Resurrected life, we might have 25 senses, 100 can you imagine that's part of the adventure and for the christian death is sad and it ought to make us mad and we ought to be angry at death but don't we dare despair because here's a picture of the reality even though there's a tombstone what's growing out over the top of it this massive life-giving tree death is a departure it is and we ought to be sad about that but it's also the beginning of a brand new adventure which is why Paul could say for me to live is, is Christ and to die is an adventure that's what he says to, is gain at the very end of the book of Chronicles of the series of the books of Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis everybody in the book dies and this is how C.S. Lewis ends the book All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, that's a perspective that will help us finish well. Here's number three history is God's masterpiece. Shakespeare said, Life is a tale told by an idiot, filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well, that's one view of history. Here's another. Paul says that in his first offense, though no one came to testify in his favor, he was delivered from the lion's mouth. And in verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And Paul makes it sound like he's going to be released, he's not going to be executed. But as we read on, we realize that's not what he means there because the rest of the verse says, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And here's what Paul's saying. Sometimes God delivers us from our sufferings and sometimes God delivers us through our sufferings. Because the only thing that can ultimately destroy us as human beings is our sin, which Jesus has a marvelous solution for. And Paul has this resounding confidence in this moment, a poise, a perspective that this isn't freaking him out. If someone criticizes him right there in the text, he says, don't hold that against him. He says, everybody left me. Paul goes, don't hold that against him. And if something goes wrong, which it did multiple times over the, in the last part of the book of Acts, his perspective, which he reflects in the book of Romans, is God works all things together for good. Now, Paul is not Pollyanna. He knows that not everything is good. But God, because of who he is and his power and his knowledge and his wisdom, can work all things together. It's the word together that's the key word there. Pastor Tim Keller writes this, from the vantage point of eternity, looking back on history, which now only God has that vantage point, but someday we're gonna have it too. When we get there, And we can look at all history. We're going to see everything together was so overruled by God. That even the evil things that actually accomplished the opposite of what they intended. The evil ended up bringing about a greater good and a greater glory than would have ever happened otherwise. The best example, one of them from the Bible is the book of Job. Where evil seems to get the upper hand and hold it. You know, Job, if you're familiar with the story, loses everything important to him in the first couple chapters of the, of the book with God's permission. And we scratch our heads through the next 38 chapters of why does God this allow this to happen? And at the end of the book, I think we all have to, we're still part of us scratching our heads. But there's something about the nature of God that's revealed in this book. And here's the deal. Looking back on the book of Job from our point in history. So for the last... Three, four thousand years, hundreds of millions of people have been encouraged by the story and the life of Job. Because he didn't give up on God, even though the suffering was intense and immense, and he felt like giving up, and everybody around him said, give up on God, just die. And Job refused to do it. And that story has brought pumped life and hope and inspiration and courage into people's lives for the last 3,000 years who've been suffering and are in similar situations. And if the evil one had known that that book was gonna encourage hundreds of millions of people, he never would have laid a hand on Job. But that's how God has the capacity to take things that we don't understand in the moment And at some point, weave it into his story in a way that brings out great good. And you might be at a place of suffering in your life today where you're going, I I get the Job story. This suffering, this chronic pain has gone on long enough. And I don't know where God is in all of this, but at the end of the day, we can say, I give up on everything else, but I will not give up on God And we can have the courage to hang in there and hang in there and hang in there, knowing that somehow, someday, some way, even though I might not see it in my own life, God is working this together for good. And that will enable us to finish strong. That's the third perspective. And here's number four. The good news, the gospel of Jesus can't be stopped. At the end of Acts, Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul. He simply writes... Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Why doesn't Luke tell us? Because the book isn't about Paul ultimately. It's not. It's about the good news that through God's spirit, life that is truly life, can be experienced by all of us. And no one can stop the good news. No one can stop the gospel from taking root and growing in the world, in the planet. There's a scene in the movie Jurassic Park. Remember the old movie, Jurassic Park? where Richard Attenborough's character, John Hammond, who creates this giant dinosaur zoo called Jurassic Park, brings all the world-class scientists together to try to impress them. And the scientists question, how in the world are you going to control these massive beasts? And John Hammond says, it's easy. We're going to have perfect control. They can't breed because we've only cloned females. We have complete control of the population. Jeff Goldblum you know his character, Dr. Ian Malcolm, is completely unimpressed. And he turns to uh, uh, John Hammond and he says, John, the kind of control you're attempting simply is not possible. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously. And one of the Jurassic Park scientists looked at, looks at, at uh, Jeff Goldblum's character and he says, are you telling me that somehow these females are going to breed. And Jeff Goldblum says, looks back, he says, no, I'm simply saying life always finds a way. And here's the message of the entire book of Acts, of the entire Bible, of the entire history of the world. God will always find a way. You just put the good news in that same little Jurassic Park conversation. Here's the message. The gospel, the good news is alive. The good news cannot be stopped. The good news breaks through barriers. The good news will always find a way. You can put Christians in prison. You can kill its leaders. You can throw up all kinds of barriers. It doesn't matter. The gospel will find a way. It is the single most powerful force in the universe. Jesus himself said, I will build my church. I will grow my church and nothing can stop it. Every other religion on the face of the planet, all the adherents, 80, 90% of them are confined to a couple of countries. Not Christianity. The good news, the gospel, 20% of Christians are in Africa, 20% in Asia, 20% in South America, 20% in Europe, 20% scattered over the rest of the world. Why? Because the gospel cannot be stopped. There's no cultural barrier. There's no political barrier. There's no economic barriers, no educational barrier. Nothing can stop it. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's God. It's the power of God. And here's the great news for all of us. We get in on it. We get in on it. God says that force, that life force that can't be stopped is in your life. It will help you overcome any problem you have. And the biggest problem we will all face is our own death. And Jesus says, I have the solution for that too. I have it and we get in on it and here's the fifth perspective in the end we only need one thing and this is the key to the other four perspectives that will empower us to finish strong no matter what we face no matter what we're finishing and it's in 2 Timothy 4:17 it says but the lord stood by my side and gave me strength proverbs 18:24 says a true friend sticks by you like family and true friendship boils down to two characteristics True friends always let you in and they never let you down. They always let you in means their lives are open to you. They're vulnerable to you. Their resources are available to you. Their arms are open. They hug you actually sometimes. They open their hearts and their lives to us and they never let you down means they're there for you. In fact, if you look closely, carefully at two aspects you see when Paul says, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. In other words, the Lord is a friend that's six closer than family. And gave me strength is a phrase that means bound up my wounds. So you see this tenderness of friendship, but you also see this toughness, this strength of friendship. They always let you in and they never let you down. And the one thing that Paul needed the most from this dingy, dank, dark dungeon cell, he has, he says, the Lord was by my side and gave me strength. Paul didn't have just this general belief in God. He had the sense that, well, God's out there somewhere. I suppose I believe in him. Paul's belief was not in his belief. His faith wasn't in his faith. His faith was in a real God who experienced right by his side, that close. And so the question for us today is, do you have that kind of experience with God do you have a sense that ah he's right by my side he's right there I know him I feel him I sense his presence in my life there's a spiritual connectedness or is God somehow kind of a third party to you kind of out there we email once in a while he sends me a text message text message through the Bible once in a while but you don't have that sense that he's right by your side and the key to finishing strong what, no matter what it is, whether it's something you're gonna finish this week or next summer, is understanding this reality, this perspective. The Lord is right by my side. He always lets me in, I always let him in, and he never lets me down, even though I know I'm gonna let him down. So I wanna give you a minute, just bow your heads at the end of this service, at the really end of our series. Just take a moment to be calm. Now, let me ask you this question. What are you trying to finish well in your life right now? What is it? It's unfinished, you know it. Where you'd go, you know what? I, I really do want to finish this strong, whatever it might be. I mean, it might be a project at work that's just kind of getting delayed and you need that sense of God's right by my side. He's going to help me when I need him on an everyday basis. Might be something to do with your health Your fitness, your finances. Maybe you're trying to finish making a life altering decision. And it's just unfinished. And you know you need to finish making this decision. It might be about who you might want to marry or your next career move or educational move or financial move. Or maybe you're trying to finish something really difficult. It's just unfinished a divorce, a treatment regimen for some difficult disease or diagnosis that you're facing. It might be this old grudge that's been unfinished, you haven't forgiven. And you're going, Jesus, I wanna finish, I wanna be done with that. Or maybe it's you haven't been able to forgive yourself for something you've done. It just hangs around, hangs around. It's unfinished business. And today you might wanna just come to Jesus and say, God, I'm tired of that. Would you help me be finished with that? Or maybe you're in a place in your life where you're retired or you're facing retirement and you don't wanna go out on the party boat Sails folded up just spending your life recreating the rest of it but you want to keep your sails up full out catching the wind of God's spirit right to the finish because you don't want to be a DNF did not finish you want to have set of you instead of us they finished well and so Jesus today uh, we can't do it on our own we can't willpower our way to this place but with your help with your spirit with your friendship our lives are open to you because we know you will never ever let us down amen